I ask you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. And again, we're continuing our look at, uh, at Acts chapter 9 and the conversion of Saul. Um, but this morning we're going to be focusing really just on verses 10 to 19a, uh, where with, you see that he is the Lord's chosen instrument. But again, I'll read the, I'll read the whole passage. Um, Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 1 to 31. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Sarsus, Tarsus rather, named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from your chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples of Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates by day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned, that they learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for the fact that you are still building your church and that you are doing it through the one who sought to destroy the church. And Lord, as we who, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were like Saul, 
instruments in the hands of the devil to sow discord and disobedience and rebellion in our hearts against you. But Lord, just as you chose Saul as your instrument to proclaim your name, you have chosen us, Lord, to proclaim your name. We thank you, Lord, for this testimony we see of Saul's testimony of the name of Christ in word and it's also for his testimony to the name of Christ in suffering. Help us also to be instruments in your hands to proclaim your name in word and in suffering that you might be glorified in and through us. For we ask it all in your precious name. Amen. Please be seated. In 1992, guitar virtuoso Eric Clapton released a song you're probably familiar with. The chorus goes like this. Would you know my name if I saw you in heaven? Would it be the same if I saw you in heaven? And this song, as many of you know, is, is called Tears in Heaven. And according to, to one survey, this song is listed as the third saddest song of all time. Next to uh, R.E.M.'s Everybody Hurts, which was released the same year, and Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You. But I remember hearing Tears in Heaven as a new Christian in 1992 and being deeply saddened when I heard Clapton's motivation for the song. You may know the story, but, but he wrote it after the, the tragic death of his four-year-old son, Connor, who died after he fell from a 54-story Park Avenue apartment. This is devastating. I can't even imagine what that would have been like for him. But as the, the song progresses, you can see that there's, there's also a note of hope. It's actually not as sad of a song as, as people often think it is because they miss something that uh, very important what Clapton was, was saying. He said, beyond the door, there's peace, I'm sure, and I know there'll be no more tears in heaven. See, Clapton was recognizing something that many people don't, that there will be no tears in heaven. And I remember wondering at a time, at the time, whether Eric Clapton was, was actually a Christian. You know, I really generally don't, don't put a lot of stock in, in the testimonies of stars over their, their faith, because quite often their lives do not, um, do not reflect faith in the gospel and some of the things that they, that they, that come out of their mouth. But, but I really think in Clapton's case, it might actually be different. In, this, in the 60s, he was uh, the, 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 the front runner in, in a band called Blind Faith, ironically, and then was, was certainly not living as a, as a Christian in the, the, the 60s, sex and drugs and, and rock and roll era. And th there's a story where, where two Christians actually approached him at one of the Blind Faith concerts. And, and he's got it. There's a song there. Um, um, about, about the glory of God. And they, and they wanted to talk to him about that song. And, and, the, and they testified that as they were talking to him, they all saw a bright light, a, a very bright light. And, and, and Clapton made a profession of faith. But soon thereafter, his life devolved further and further and further into sexual morality and, and drugs and alcohol. And it was, was pretty evident that that if, if, if he was actually a Christian, that he was not actually living as a Christian. But then fast forward to when his life really um, fell apart and, and through, he began to see that, that the sin in his life and, and, and really seemed to come to faith and, and really put an end to the, the, the sin that he was, was living in. But then fast forward even further to the time now, to 1992, when, when, when his son Connor tragically died. And this is what he said. He said, uh, uh, initially he was just shocked and was, was tempted to, to give up on his faith. But he, he began to know through his suffering, through his pain, he began to really know who God is. And so the thing that would destroy the faith of so many in the life of a real Christian actually cemented Eric Clapton's faith. And, and he testifies to this day to, to being actually a born-again follower of Jesus Christ that the tragedy actually drew him closer to God. As we think about the song and the, the questions that, that Clapton asks, 
Were you to talk with him or, or with somebody in a, in a similar situation to his, we, we could offer him hope in the gospel, right? We, we know that if, if Clapton is truly born again, as it seems likely, he will shed no tears in heaven. And that, and that is not primarily because of the hope of a blessed reunion with his son or with others who have gone before. As glorious as that is, that ultimately there'll be no tears in heaven because of the blessed union with the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. Christ is the ultimate joy and the ultimate glory of heaven. Yes, we, we will know our loved ones in heaven and that will be wonderful, but even more wonderful, infinitely more wonderful is the fact that we'll know Jesus Christ in glory. We will rejoice in the fact that, that he knows us and the fact that we know even now that he knows all of his children and he knew us before the foundation of the world. As Ephesians 1, 4-6 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. God chose us in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us in Christ for adoption as sons and daughters in Christ. The man who wrote those words knew personally what he's speaking about. He knew this from experience. The man who wrote these words is the Apostle Paul, the man whose conversion we're discussing in Acts chapter 9. As we saw last week, Saul or or Paul, and again, I'm going to flip back and forth between those, these, those two names, same person, uh, depending on the context. Or, so Saul or Paul, as you've been known from Acts 13 onwards, did not recognize the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't recognize Jesus Christ as he persecuted the followers of Christ. He was ravaging the church, and in, in so doing, he was persecuting Christ. In fact, as, as Acts 9 begins, he is on his way to Damascus with the authorization from the high priest to drag Christian men and women bound in chains back to Jerusalem. And as he approached Damascus, the Lord Jesus appeared to him in a light brighter than the noonday sun, noonday sun causing him to fall to the ground. And he spoke to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he replied, Who are you, Lord? Although he knew that he was in the presence of, of a glorious heavenly being, he did not recognize who he was. And the Lord Jesus replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And in that moment, Saul realized what he'd been doing. In his supposed zeal for God, he was actually serving self and serving Satan. This was, was not a course correction. This was a 180 degree turnaround. This was nothing less than radical conversion. Moving from spiritual death to new life in Christ. In a moment. And the Lord Jesus sent him on a new mission. He was still to go to Damascus where he'd be told what to do. And so Saul rose from the ground, but he had to be led by the hand because he had been struck blind. For three days, he could not see, but he fasted and prayed. His spiritual eyes had been opened. And that takes us to where we begin this morning. We saw last week in verses 1 to 9 that Saul didn't recognize the Lord or recognize his mission. And this morning in verses 10 to 19, Ananias didn't recognize Saul or Saul's mission. Again, that he is the, the instrument in the Lord's chosen instrument. And the next week, Lord willing, in verses 19b to 31, the Jews and the disciples didn't recognize Saul. It's still only 420. I'm doing great here. The one who was persecuting Christians and in effect persecuting Christ, now had faith in Christ and would be called to proclaim Christ. 
Christ was building his church through the one who tried to destroy it, and he still is. Christ is still building his church through the one who tried to destroy it. But many who followed Christ did not recognize Saul now, who now Saul now was, or what Christ was doing in him and through him. In verse 10, we're introduced to Ananias, a disciple at Damascus. So Saul would have been right in, in the fact that, that the, the church had spread to Damascus. Now this Ananias is not to be confused with the Ananias of, of Acts chapter 5, who, along with his wife, was killed by God for lying to the Holy Spirit. Ananias was a, a common name in that culture. Like Saul, Ananias had had a, has a vision of the Lord Jesus. That it was the Lord Jesus who was speaking to him is clear from the context if you look down in verses 15 and 16. So the Lord Jesus called Ananias by name. But unlike Saul, Ananias was already a disciple. So he recognized the Lord. And he responded, here I am, Lord. And the Lord told him to go to the street called Straight, to the, which is the main thoroughfare that they cut east to west through the city of Damascus. That, that street still exists to this day. On Straight Street, he was to go to the home of Judas, which was another common name in that culture. And he was to look for Saul of Tarsus. Where Saul was not just on Straight Street. He was on the straight and narrow street that leads to eternal life. Saul, the Lord told Ananias, was praying. Now, as a Pharisee, Saul was certainly devoted to prayer. But now, for the first time in his life, he really prayed. Now, I'm sure you can testify the difference between praying and praying. There's those, those, those prayers that, that we, we make out of rote repetition or just because we feel we have to out of, out of duty and there's, there's no sense that we're actually talking to God. We're actually just, just talking to the, to the ceiling. As a Pharisee, as, a, as an unbeliever, his prayers were bouncing off the ceiling. God was not hearing any of his prayers. This was the first time in his life he prayed. First time he really prayed. And this time the Lord heard his prayer. His prayer was a testimony to his conversion, but far more than that, his prayers were testimony to the Lord's faithfulness, for his prayer was being answered immediately. Even as he was praying, his prayer was being answered. The Lord recognized Saul's voice. The Lord recognized Saul as his adopted son. Brothers and sisters, take heart. The Lord hears your prayers, for you are his adopted son. You are his adopted daughter. The Lord hears your prayers, and he will answer. He doesn't answer always right away like he did here. Sometimes he does. But he will answer the prayers of his children. The Lord answers Saul's prayers by sending him a vision as well. So this was, in fact, a double vision. Not as in you're seeing double. Ananias was having a, a vision, and Saul was, uh, and, and he was having a vision about Saul, and Saul was having a vision about Ananias at the same time. And in his vision, Ananias would lay his hands on him so that he would regain his sight. We'll see a similar double vision in uh, Acts chapter 10, where the Gentile centurion Cornelius receives a vision telling him to send men to Peter, and Peter receives a vision in which the Lord tells him what God has made clean do not call common. The message being that Peter was to welcome Gentiles into the kingdom of God. So another double vision. Ananias received this vision from the Lord, but as yet he did not see very clearly. He didn't see clearly. He, he, was, he was to open Saul's eyes, but before that could happen, his own eyes needed to be opened. He, he had a blindness that, that needed to be taken care of. So Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's here 
So in here, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call in your name. So Saul's reputation had preceded him. He had done evil to the saints of the Lord. Now, this is the first time in the New Testament that we see Christians referred to as saints. The title here does does not refer to a a higher level of Christian. It isn't a, a title. Saint is not a title that is conferred upon Christians by the Roman Catholic Church. Rather, the title saint is conferred by God upon all Christians. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you and I are saints. We are saints of God. Now, Ananias recognized the evil of what Saul had done, but he did not recognize Saul now. He he knew what Saul had done to the saints in Jerusalem and his plans to do in Damascus, but he did not know what Jesus had done to Saul. Paul might have persecuted the saints in the past, but now Paul was a saint. In that moment, Saul became a saint. Saul had bound those who call on Jesus' name, but now Saul was calling on Jesus' name. Ananias did not recognize the Lord's command, and he did not recognize the Lord's grace. This was not a mere man who was giving him instructions. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was questioning Christ. It's ludicrous. R.C. Sproul calls it unspeakable arrogance. And it is. But Sproul goes on to say that we do the same thing repeatedly. He points out that when we do not like how God is dealing with us, or we do not like our circumstances, we grumble or push back against God. And so in that moment, we're behaving like Ananias. Sproul calls this weakness of the flesh. May we all recognize the the weakness in our own flesh and may we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Ananias made assumptions about Saul's hatred of the church, but in questioning the Lord, he was also making assumptions about God's grace. And in a sense, I get it. Right? Saul had ravaged the church. He, he was here in Damascus seeking to arrest Christians and bring them to trial and even to death in Jerusalem. And so humanly speaking, Paul would have been as far away from Christianity as you can possibly get. His motives would have been questionable at best. It would be like being told to invite Kim Jong-un North Korea's supreme leader, or, or Hibatullah Akunzada, the leader of the Taliban, to church. Being saved is the last thing that Ananias considered from Saul. But Ananias should have had higher considerations of God. God can save anyone. Anyone. No one is too sinful or too hard-hearted to be saved. And if you're here as a Christian this morning, you're evidence of that fact. But I wonder, for us as, as Christians, is, is, there, is there anyone that, that, that we put into the category of unsavable? Is there, is there anyone that you think is too hard-hearted or too bound up in sin to be saved? Now, now I know we don't consciously do that. Theologically, we know that that no one is beyond saving. We know at least theoretically, theologically, that God could save anyone. But let me put it another way. Is there anyone in your life that you have not witnessed to? Is there anyone in your life whose conversion you don't pray for? Have you grown weary and faint-hearted in praying for that family member, for that friend, for that neighbor, for that coworker? Maybe you don't pray for them at all. When, when was the last time that you prayed for our prime minister or for our premier? Remember who God is. Remember the limitless depths 
of his grace and mercy. If God saved Saul, he can save anyone. If God saved us, he can save anyone. Well, now the Lord corrects Ananias in verse 16. The Lord told him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Saul was the Lord's chosen instrument. God had chosen him. As he testifies in Galatians 1.15, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace... And in 1 Timothy 1.16, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. God was not surprised by Saul's sin. Saul had an appointment with God, a divine appointment that had been ordained before the foundation of the world. And God let Saul do what Saul did. Even his part in the stoning of Stephen. To present Saul as a trophy of his grace. To show just how gracious God is to wicked, rebellious sinners like him and like you and I were. So God chose Saul. He, cho- he was his chosen instrument. And, and the, the word instrument here, chosen instrument, literally means chosen vessel. This is the same word that is used in Romans 9, 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Saul deserved to be a vessel of wrath. He deserved destruction. But in God's sovereign grace, God made Saul to be a vessel of mercy to make known the riches of God's glory. Saul was chosen to carry the name of Christ before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Ananias now knows the plans for Saul before Saul does. Much of the rest of the the narrative of Acts is the testimony of the fulfillment of of these things, of Saul's bearing witness of the name of Christ for Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. In fact, the book of Acts is going to end with Saul, now Paul, commonly referred to then as Paul, on his way to Rome, where he will eventually bear witness to Caesar himself. As one who had been reconciled to God through the death of Christ, Saul was now to go to others with the message of reconciliation. Saul had left Jerusalem for Damascus with the authority from the chief priests to bind Christians. But he arrived in Damascus with the authority of Jesus Christ, the high priest, to proclaim freedom to those who are bound in sin. The Apostle Paul's influence continues to this day. At Bible study on Tuesday evening, we had some great discussion as to why we are thankful to the Lord for the Apostle Paul. We think of Paul's calling. But again, as we briefly touched on last week, you have the same calling. You have the same mission as the Apostle Paul. No, Jesus Christ did not appear to you personally along the road, but your salvation is every bit as much a miracle of God's sovereign grace. You're every bit as much called as the Apostle Paul was called. If you're reconciled to Christ you also have been given the ministry of reconciliation. You may not go before kings, but the Lord knows those to whom you will carry the name of Christ. That is your calling. Christ purchased you with his blood so that you can give glory to his name. 
1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. But Saul wasn't chosen just to carry the name of Christ in word. Saul was also chosen to suffer for the name of Christ. So now verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Saul had caused the suffering of others for the sake of Christ. Now he would suffer for the sake of Christ. He had caused Christians great suffering. And now he's going to experience great suffering as a Christian. Now I said that last week that, that since the coming of Christ, that the Apostle Paul did more, has done more to influence world history than any other human being. And that he has done more to build the church than any other human being. I think the case can be made that the Apostle Paul also suffered more than any human being apart from Christ since that time as well. In fact, I believe his suffering is, is only surpassed and that only possibly by that of Job. Again, we'll see some of the suffering that Paul experienced in the rest of Acts. The Holy Spirit testifies to him in Acts 20:23 20, that in every city imprisonment and affliction awaited him. Paul recounts his suffering in in 2 Corinthians 11:23 uh, and following and if you like you can turn with me there. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You're probably familiar with this. 23 and following. Where he testifies that he was in far greater labors, far more imprisonments countless beatings, often near death. He received 39 lashes of the whip five times. He was beaten by rods three times. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was adrift at sea for a day and a night in frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, robbers, and his own people, in danger from Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, and from false brothers, in toil and hardship, many nights of lost sleep, hungry, thirsty, and cold in exposure, as well as pressure and concern for the churches. Listen. It's just one of those things that happened to me once. You'd never hear the end of it. But he experienced these things repeatedly throughout his ministry. And his ministry would end with his martyrdom. Where tradition says that he was beheaded in Rome. So what was happening here? Why did, did Paul suffer like this? Now there are some false teachers of the, the so-called prosperity gospel like Benny Hinn and, and Kenneth Copeland and Bill Johnson who say that suffering means that you do not have enough faith. But think about it. Did Paul not have enough faith? Clearly these men are, are, are off their rockers and far worse. I think more commonly in our circles, we, we could conclude that, that he was being punished. So some would conclude that, that Paul's suffering was God's justice, that he was experiencing what he had done to others. So it was We'd say, okay, it wasn't that Paul didn't have enough faith. Was he being punished for his, his unfaithfulness? Or was there some continual unfaithfulness in his life that was causing him to suffer like this? No. No, no, no. The Lord says explicitly to Ananias that Saul is to suffer for the name of Christ. He's not suffering because of his own sin. He's suffering for the name of Christ. Some, like Job's counselors or the, or the apostles in the response to the man born blind in, in John 9, say that suffering is the result of some personal sin. It might be, but you can't know that. Do not conclude that your problems, let alone the problems in someone else's life, are because of some secret sin in your life or in their life. 
do not conclude that suffering in the life of a Christian is punishment from God. You can't know it for yourself, and you certainly cannot know it for someone else. And there is no sense here, none whatsoever, that Paul's suffering was a punishment. His punishment was poured out completely and fully on Christ. Now, it is true that, that there may be a sense in which, which his, his suffering was, was for his sanctification. But let this inform your theology of suffering. God is sovereign and loving and wise. The Christian, if you are suffering, it's not because God has removed his love from you. It's not because he's angry at you. He loves you with the very same love he has for his son. If you're suffering, the Lord is not surprised. He is sovereign over your suffering. He's certainly not surprised by your suffering. In fact, in his, in his omniscience, in his infinite wisdom, he has decreed that even your suffering would be used for his glory and for your good. He's going to use that suffering for your sanctification and so that you can reflect the glory of Christ. God has a wise and a perfect plan in the life of the believer. Again, think about Eric Clapton. It was through the, the, the horror. I, don't, I, I really don't think there's, there's, I said, I can't imagine what it had been like for him. Not just in those moments, but even to this day. But he testifies that it was through that suffering that he really got to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, Paul explicitly tells us a key reason for his suffering in Colossians 1.24. Let's just go there, please. Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, that in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul says he is filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? Well, we know what it doesn't mean. It's clear that it doesn't mean that there is something lacking in the death of Christ for our sins. Right? We know that Christ's righteous life, substitutionary death, victorious resurrection, and continuous intercession are sufficient for our salvation. We know that there is nothing that needed to be done for our, sal for our salvation that was not achieved by Christ. So what's Paul saying here? He says this is for the church. He's speaking specifically here to the Colossians, but really the vast majority of those to whom Paul ministered had not personally seen the suffering of Christ. So in his suffering, Paul was a living representation of the suffering of Christ. And it wasn't just Paul. We too are a living representation of the suffering of Christ as we suffer for Christ. Now, I'm not talking about, about consequences of sin. And again, in the life of the believer, these things do are for our sanctification. This is not punishment. It's, it's discipline for growing in Christ-likeness. But when you suffer as a Christian, you are reflecting the glory of Christ. We also suffer for Christ. Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Right? We are predestined for salvation and we're also predestined for suffering. 
Or 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We, like Paul, reflect the suffering of Christ to a watching world. In the, in the words of Alexander McLaren, not Brian McLaren, Alexander McLaren, the life of Christ, divine, pure, incapable of copy and repetition in one aspect has ended forever for men, remains to be lived in another view of it, by every Christian who in like manner has to fight with the world, who in like manner has to resist temptation, who in like manner has to stand by God's help, pure and sinless insofar as the new nature of him is concerned in the midst of the world that is full of evil. In other words, Christ has done all that needs to be done for our salvation, but our suffering will continue as long as we remain in the world. Our suffering causes us to place our trust and our hope in Christ. And as others see us resting in Christ amidst difficult circumstances, their trust and their hope goes, grows too. And in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we, we see how, how even we're able to, to comfort others in their affliction with the comfort that we have received from God. We don't offer our comfort, we offer them God's comfort that we also have received. And Paul tells us also here the result of his suffering. Here in Colossians 1, 24, he rejoices in it. So, so again, how can, can Paul rejoice in his sufferings? Is, is he some kind of crazy masochist? Not at all. He does not enjoy pain for pain's sake. He's not rejoicing because of his suffering, but he's rejoicing in his suffering. And there's a big difference. He's able to rejoice because he knows who God is. Because he knows the, the sufficiency of Christ in his suffering. Because he sees the purpose in his plan. Because he sees the ministry that he's able to do through his suffering. And When we adopt that perspective, that of seeking the glory of God in our suffering, it helps to carry us through. And I see that in many of your lives in the church as you walk through suffering for the glory of Christ. We praise God for that. Praise the work in our midst as we also carry the name of Christ in our suffering like the Apostle Paul. So Ananias departed and entered the house in verse 17. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias was convinced, and he was obedient. He too was an instrument in the Lord's hands to minister to Saul. Now we don't hear anything else about Ananias in the rest of the scriptures. But think about the role that he had, that this part that he played in the life of Saul. It's amazing to think. We don't know who our lives are going to, to touch and, and who their lives are going to touch and so who we can ultimately influence for the gospel as we also are God's instruments. You know, we were talking in, in Sunday school last week about how our parents and siblings and old friends often think of us as what we were, not as what we are, not as what we are now. But you, as you live your life before them, and you, you intentionally are, are different now, you, you are bearing testimony to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as, as said, Saul will, will do for the rest of his life. And notice here how Ananias shows us how we should welcome an enemy, particularly an enemy here who comes to faith. He recognizes him as a brother. Ananias calls Saul brother. You can't just stop and think about that for a moment. The one who was arresting and killing Christians 
is immediately recognized and welcomed as a brother. That's grace. You know, many of us do not have the relationship with our families that we would love to have with our blood relatives, but we enjoy a rich relationship with our brothers and sisters who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. From 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Like I was saying to, to my, my homeless friend, this is not just a clean slate. Right? You, you are new. You're a new creature in Christ. And I've shared this before, but this is what, what Jane shared with me when I talked about my testimony, my life apart from Christ. You said, fully expecting that she would say, you know what? I'm out. That's, this, is, this is too much for me. But she shall grace upon me. She said, you're a new creature in Christ. We need to let the blood of Christ color the way that we see ourselves and color the way we see each other. May we see ourselves and each other through the blood of Christ. Let it color the way that, that you interact with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, it's not just that you're new today, you're new every day. We're continually being renewed. But I think what often, quite, quite often happens that when we, when we see each other, we see it's like we have a billboard over our heads with all the things that we've done wrong. And we relate to that person not by who they are in Christ, but by this, this laundry list of all the things they've done wrong. When you're doing that, you're behaving just like Ananias before. But he recognizes Saul and embraces him as brother. And again, we have received the ministry of reconciliation. We are reconciled to God and we are reconciled to each other through the blood of Christ. Like in Ephesians chapter 2, the wall of hostility has been broken down between God and us, between us and each other. People from every back, any background, any personality type, any weakness, your brother and your sister in Christ. So again, do we recognize each other as brothers and sisters who, they, even though they may have treated us very poorly, have done nothing compared to what Saul did to the church. So Saul laid hands, sorry, Ananias laid hands on Saul. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like fails, scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Notice here is an aside that Ananias now baptized Saul. It's not only apostles. We saw this in chapter 8 as well with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. But something, I think actually literally something like scales fell from his eyes. He was immediately able to see this is a miracle. And, and really this, this miracle is a living parable, right? He had been blind to the Lord Jesus Christ He'd been blinded by the light of Christ, but now his eyes were opened, and so he would now reveal the light of Christ to others. Dennis Johnson explains that the contrast between darkness and blindness of rebellion and seeing the light of divine glory is a pervasive biblical theme. But Paul experiences graphic metaphor in a direct and intense way. He asks the question, was Paul God's enemy or God's servant? Was he a blind man who needed a guide? Or was he a guide who led the blind? And what God reveals who he was as God's servant would be a guide to the blind. 
R.C. Sproul says that life, that Saul's life was turned upside down in one moment on the road to Damascus. And because his life was turned upside down by the power of the Holy Spirit, the world was turned upside down. And we have been turned upside down through the testimony that God put on his lips and pen that feeds the church even to this day. Now, I agree with, with everything that Sproul says here, except I think he got it backwards. It's not the things where we were turned upside down. We were turned right side up. Now, many do not recognize Paul. They come up with all kinds of theories, the new perspective on Paul, and so on, and try to, 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 to undermine the gospel. You will not recognize Paul until you look to understand who Paul is from the Bible. And you recognize who Paul is, not as he was, but as he is, as you see his ministry in the name of Christ in word, his ministry in the name of Christ in suffering. And if you do not recognize Paul for who he really is, I fear that you will not recognize Christ either. And if you don't recognize Christ, as Eric Clapton also wrote in Tears in Heaven, you won't belong in heaven. Now, in a sense, no one belongs in heaven except Christ. But we who have been purchased by his blood, we who are the bride of Christ, belong in heaven because Christ lived for us, died for us, rose for us, ascended for us, and is interceding for us and will return for us. We belong in heaven because of Christ and only because of Christ. But if you do not believe in Christ, you will not be in heaven and there will be tears and gnashing of teeth for all eternity. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we'll recognize who Paul is. And that through Paul, we will recognize who you are. As he testifies so clearly throughout the New Testament. We pray that each one of us will recognize Christ for who he is as the only Savior and Lord, that we will all turn to Him and continually look to Him in repentance and faith. We pray through the power of Your Holy Spirit that some who are, are listening to this who are not yet in Christ would themselves recognize Christ and turn to Christ and put their faith in Christ. Continue to build this church through your servant, through the Apostle Paul, and through the weak words of this servant who is now speaking. We pray it all in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.